Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, I have in the beach shack former pro surfer and Northern Beaches legend, Toby Martin. He comes in, chats about growing up on the Northern Beaches, his beloved DY Beach, and 15 years of traveling around the world, some great stories he has got, and also the transition from being a professional sportsman and then into working life. So now let's sit back and have a listen to my chat with Toby. Here this week in the Beach Shack, it's, uh, I've known this guy for a fair while. We've uh, crossed paths over the years with different things, with surfing and lifeguarding and, and racing. Uh, Toby Martin, welcome to the Beach Shack. Yeah, Hoppo, absolute pleasure to join you on the, on the podcast here. Well, mate, we'll start off with you grew up on the northern beaches and I am um, now living on the northern beaches, so great. How does that feel? Mate, it's, uh, it was quite intimidating when I first left the eastern suburbs to come up, but... Really? Yeah, but it has. I've always called it the dark side. Everyone that comes seems to love it. Yeah, mate, I do love it actually now. I'm up here, but when I was uh, leaving these suburbs, I had expectations. I don't know what they were, but uh, yeah, mate, I should have done it years ago. Now I'm here. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Uh, obviously, working in real estate for 12 <laughs> years, you uh, you get to learn a lot about people's lives and what they want. And obviously, COVID sort of exacerbated that where the beaches, well, it seemed everywhere became really popular. So I don't know if all markets can have 90% out of area buyers, but we certainly had it. <laughs> but great to have you on, mate. Yeah, welcome aboard the beaches. <laughs> well, mate, growing up northern beaches, how was that? Yeah, it used to be, I guess, like everywhere, it was a, a, a pretty tough place and maybe it echoes some of your thoughts that, you know, DY was, you know, a pretty tough place to grow up. Obviously, born in 73 and started hanging around the beach when I was 10 or 12 and obviously that 70s and 80s period in surfing was quite extreme. DY didn't have the best reputation, but we did have pro events. Growing up, I didn't really know about surfing. I was playing every sport under the sun. I was cricket for 15 years, soccer for 12 years, rugby league for about eight years. Growing up on Northern Beaches, just immersed myself in sport, which probably uh, didn't help with my education too much. I just wanted to be out there playing and, and, uh, and getting involved. Yeah, once I started to click in, obviously dad um, was very active at the beach and there's a bit of a eastern suburbs history there. My grandfather, Cecil, used to run the Bondi bars so my dad grew up right on Bondi Beach before you blokes turned it around and made it famous. Yeah. Again. <laughs> yeah, mate, great place down there at Bondi. Yeah, it was amazing. And um, some of the stories that dad had about, you know, going down to the beach after the weekend and looking for money and having the barbed wire up to stop the Japanese invasion. And, yeah, I sort of learned about that history a little bit later in life. My dad was 20-year Air Force pilot and... 
I've got two older sisters, and when he had me, he decided it was time to settle up on the northern beaches, bought a block of land at Beacon Hill, which overlooked DY Beach, which uh, if you came to our house, you, you can't miss DY Beach. It just looks right over DY, Long Reef, all the way up to Narrabeen. So there was always going to be that inkling, but Dad used to love uh, having a run along the beach after work. So I mean, Dad used to go down the beach, and then I don't know how it happened, but a boogie board arrived in the house. I'm not sure if Dad was riding a boogie board. I don't think he was. He was more body surfing. Got one of the old 1962 hardwood timber boards here that Dad had. So somehow I got my hands on this body board, and in the corner there at Dy, just started standing up on it. I I can never remember riding it prone. So, yeah, surfing sort of um, started to, I guess, take over all the other sports. I started kind of late, about 12 years of age. I mean, you see some kids that are almost professional now at six or seven. Um, I remember seeing John Florence get better waves at Pipeline when he was 11 than I was as a touring professional at 25. remember Punch (laughs) O'Sullivan whipping him in just like with his hand and he'd be getting stand-up tubes. But, um, yeah, so the beach was always part of our family. My grandmother was a swimmer, so it was inevitable the beach would have been there in some context. But, yeah, riding waves just started to, I guess, take over the other sports, standing out there in the hot summer sun waiting for the ball to come to you. It wasn't <laughs> as appealing as going to the beach and riding a few waves. So when did you realise that you had the skill and potentially could go on and, and be a professional surfer? Yeah, probably not until a lot later in life, I guess. I only started really competing locally. Shane Herring, actually, who won the 92 Coke and was Australia's answer to Kelly Slater. I was out free surfing just at DY and he said, if you're in the contest, you would have beat my brother and his younger brother, Brett. And I was like, I didn't know anything about contests or you know that, that sort of beach culture. I was just down there having having fun surfing. So he sort of said, why don't you come along and, and surf in the event? It was a Christian board riders. And I went, oh, okay. And he goes, we're here next month. It's every every Saturday, the first month. So I started to go down and I got, I think, second to Brett the first event. So I went, oh, okay, this is kind of kind of cool when you get those, I guess, plaudits and you can see, okay, well, my skill level was okay in this field. But it probably wasn't till a lot later on in life. I remember the pros at the beach at the time, Garth Dickinson, we had some legends down there, Shane Herring, Brad Wybrus, some some great local success, Russell Lewis. And later on, I found out we had the, the second ever winner of the Bells Beach Classic in Doug Andrews, being involved with surfing this for 20 years. You start to unearth the history of it over time. But yeah, I started later. We had the Pro Junior events. We had a Jim Sass Memorial, which was at DY. But those that sort of competition side didn't, kick in. I guess I was a bit scared of failure. I didn't want to go and get my ass kicked by everyone. And I remember Garth Dickinson saying, you should go in the pro junior. He said that for about four years. I'm like, I don't think I'm good enough. I I don't want to go in there and just, you know, waste a hundred bucks and and be no good. He said, no, I think you'll do all right. So it took about three or four years worth of encouragement from the guys there to get me involved, to want to see how far I could take it. But once I had that once I had that taste for it, I was like, okay, one, I think I broke Joel Jones's 10-year winning streak of winning the Northern Beaches titles. And I was like, okay, so a few things started to sort of drop into place. And I was like, okay, well, 
I don't just want to be a good surfer in Australia because there's a few stories going around about really good, talented surfers. Chad Edzer comes to mind initially that were great surfers in Australia but didn't go on with it. And then at that time, Peter Whitaker um, developed the APSA tour, which was really good. It gave us local events around Australia, so travelling to you know, West Oz and South Oz and Victoria and down to Bells. And that sort of really started to feed my competitive juices but also gear me up for, for travelling. So that was probably a lot later in life. That was after school, maybe 20s. It's kind of ridiculous in this day and age. But, yeah, around 20 I started to want to see how far I could take it and sort of self-funded myself. I had a lot of people... Like I said, DY was a, a pretty tough place to grow up. They had the point break there and you really had to earn your stripes just to get a wave out there and you work your way through the, the pecking order. So that was kind of intimidating in itself. And then as you start to fill out, you grow, you mature, you start um, surfing when it's six to eight foot, you start pushing the, the eight foot boundary and the, the older guys who you thought were, you know, legends start saying, oh, I'm not going this set, you have it and, you know, you start to you know test your skills and see how far you could go, but it was probably that that accumulation of things of a lot of encouragement from from the older guys that were competing, as I mentioned, Garth Dickinson, Shane Herring, but then having that junior circuit or, or the sorry the senior circuit, the APSA there to go. Okay, well I can travel around Australia. I went and got a job down at the old uh, Manly Pacific Park Royal, which had a lot of histories and stories with it as well, the uh, Kalasich murders. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it was, um, it was a, a really good um, eye-opening thing for me. I love the travel aspect of it, especially when you, you grow up on the northern beaches and I, I sort of just really honed my skills at T.Y. Point. And then, you know, to, to ride barreling lefts, which I hadn't really done, I'd go up to Butterbox, which is a, a really soft sort of easy left at the end of the beach there at Long Reef. But, yeah, just to keep uh, continuing honing your skills. And then I had a really a good a bunch of competitive guys like Jake Patterson and Richie Lovett, who I was competing against. You know, they were right on top of their game and sort of took me under their wing a little bit and sort of showed me the ropes and what was possible and... I did a bit of training with Jake, um, who obviously went on to win four World Championship Tour events. I mean, he was probably one of my biggest inspirations. He wasn't the most talented surfer in the world, but boy, in terms of preparation, asking every single question of every other competitor in the lineup, being ready to take off before the start of the heat, there was this. Uh, I just was involved with some people that gave me this really good learning scape. And whilst I was doing that, a guy called Shane Herring, who helped me get into competitive surfing, just exploded on the world tour and became number one in the world. And it was like, I watched him go away on this world tour, travel to France, Europe, Japan, and each time he'd come back from the tour, he was 300% better. And I'm like, whatever this tour thing is, I've got to get on it because every time he comes back, he's 300% better. I don't care if I win, but if I can go away for three months and get 200% better... I'm on this tour. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice melting pot of, you know, sort of being in or, or thereabouts and going okay and then having someone from my beach go on and, and capture the world stage like he did. Yeah, it was just fortunate. I guess a lot of guys don't grow up and, and sort of see someone they can touch, feel, and one of their own go on and, you know, and pretty much take over the world. That was the long version anyway. 
Mate, it's an amazing, you know, the way you came through and, and at a later age, as you said, these days, you know, kids 12, 13, they're getting ready to get on the tour by 15, 16. And, but how was it? You said the travel was good, but what about when you had to then go into um, the qualifying tour to get onto the tour? Yeah, that was pretty brutal, mate. Uh, obviously, everyone thinks it's, um, you know, oh, what, a, what a great lifestyle it is. You're on the road for nine or ten months, which is which is great when you're sort of living at home. And then I sort of connected with a few other guys that were on a, a similar sort of journey that started late in in Michael Campbell and another guy, Danny Wills, Lee Winkler. So I sort of connected with a, a bunch of guys that were a bit older. That you know, Willsy obviously shot to fame with all down the line surfing, and then took a couple of years off and just hung out in Byron and just was Danny Wills, but. To connect with those guys like Mick Campbell and then Wilsey, um, who had such a high skill level, sort of pulled me and Cambo along. And we were just going from event to event, basically on the prize money. I bought a world ticket for $2,000. had no idea about Europe or France. Got to England on this world trip. I went there for a week. I did okay in the contest. I was sponsored by Aloha at that time. They said, I'll stay next week. We've got a, a team's event. So I helped the team win at Newquay down there. So I got a thousand pounds, which is like three grand. And I was like, oh, how good is this? And they said, I'll stay the next week. So I stayed the next week. I won the Cornish and Open down there. So that's a nice little, uh, along with the past, he's got the British title there, beat Spencer Hargraves in the final. I think I got another thousand pounds. So I had all this money that, you know, I was getting by on the scrape of my leg rope and I stayed in England for a month, which is pretty crazy. I probably wouldn't do that again now, but uh, at the time it was just, <laughs> how good's this? I went to this amazing event, this Surfers Against Sewage Ball, met Andrew Ridgely from Wham and, you know, it was just in this crazy lifestyle and then, and then they sent me to France and then that really blew my mind. It was, you know, we were surfing in cold water in England, as you know, even in summer in the wetsuit and then you get to France and it's, board shorts and nakedness and, and then it was like, how good's this world tour? And the waves everywhere that we went on that first year, absolutely pumped. And doing the tour for fifteen years, I know that's not always the case, but this year I think it was I might have been ninety ninety four. Absolutely pumped at every stop. Even places like down in Spain and Zerouts, we had that at eight to ten foot, like on the beach break. And then I go back for, you know, the rest of my career and we're surfing one to two feet on short slop. But it was just a combination of things. It was just that first year was just so epic, really good waves, a really good crew to be around. And I actually finished four or five spots out of the the elite, the world tour, which sort of shocked me a little bit. As I said, I didn't have really any money when I started out. I didn't know how hard traveling was, but then doing okay in the contests. It sort of got me to Brazil where I was a chance to make the world tour. I had to travel over there by myself, which was one of the scariest things I've ever done. I arrived in, uh, there was a contest at Guadaja. I had no idea where Guadaja was. So um, I can't believe mum and dad actually let me do it, but I guess when I asked mum, she said, I didn't really have any choice. You just were going, which is pretty hard. I don't know if I'd let my daughter do it. This day and age, but I got to Brazil by myself, had no idea where this Guadalajara was, and they said, oh, you know, catch a train, and I'm like, oh, you know, you hear the stories about Brazil, people, you know, getting killed and kidnapped and lost, and I was like, oh, I'll just jump in a cab. 
So I jump in this cab and say, can you take me to Guadajar? We go about half an hour and I'm like, oh, okay, this is, this is getting a bit of a worry. And I said, oh, how far is it? Oh, not too far. We start leaving the city and we go into the country. And I'm like, this guy's going to kill me. I've got these big, massive boards on the roof, <laughs> strapped on, and it was two hours. It cost me 300 real, which was equal to the, the US dollar at the time. But it was two hours. I can't imagine getting a, a cab ride. <laughs> and I've never been so thankful to get to a, a surf hotel. All the boys were there and oh, it, was, it was such a, a freaky encounter. But, um, yeah, also that first year was just just amazing and I was pretty fortunate that number one I was around the, the right guys who improved my skill level I got a taste for some success which proved you know, pretty hard over the next five years I thought I could sort of jump onto the tour Mick Campbell made it Danny Wills made it and I guess my learning process was a bit slower but it took yeah a good four or five years which when you start to get to sort of 25 26 and you're earning you know I basically had a thousand dollars worth of sponsorship and some free gear off Quicksilver to go and do the tour. If it wasn't for the prize money, I certainly wouldn't have been there. But, you know, it's not something I'd recommend for the kids out there to be sort of travelling the world. Dad was high on education. He said, well, while you're in Hawaii, the University of Hawaii is great. And I'm like, Dad, I'm surfing pipeline. I'm just, you know, I'm not trying to get punched out. I've got waves that are going to kill me. And you're worried about me going to the University of Hawaii. I said, I'm trying to do this tour thing. And he goes, yeah, but, mate, you're earning $100 a month. That's not a life. I had a push bike, and each year I'd come home, those four or five years I didn't qualify, I just felt so deflated. Again, I'd go back to DY, and the local guys would be like, mate, keep doing it. Do it for us. We're plumbers. We're chippies. We're tradies. We love watching on the world tour. Just keep doing it. So they sort of buoyed my enthusiasm to, to keep going, whereas Dad was very – you know, you're 25 or 26 and he used to lend me money as well. Each each July I'd be a bit short before, you know, you have to pay for the rest of the year in car hire and hotels and contest fees. So he lent me money for about four or five of those years and I remember the last year he said, this is the last check I'm giving you and I think it was out of his super fund. And I was like, okay, this is serious. I, it's, you know, I've got to either make this thing or um, do something else. So... Um, I was fortunate that I was able to crack the tour in 2000, which, funny enough, he'd go down the beach and I'm in the paper and, and getting a bit of notoriety and he came home one day and he said, all the boys at swimming reckon you're doing pretty good. And that was his MO for, um, you know, keeping me going. I was like, well, you know I'm doing good. And he goes, yeah, but all the boys at the swimming now, they're, they're right. Everyone's supporting you down there. And I was like, oh, great. Thanks, Dad. It's been four or five years. You know exactly what I'm doing. But it's the boys at swimming that bloody give you enough encouragement to come home and yeah. tell me to keep going. Too funny. I mean that 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 era, that ilk. There, um, you know, you want the best for your kids, but yeah, it was just a funny turning point moment. Well, mate, what was it like when you did crack it? You finally made it onto the tour. You think that's sort of, you know, life's going to get a bit easier, and you certainly start to work the sponsors a bit harder now that you're a touring professional, but it's almost like applying for the job. And once you get the job, then the work really starts. And what I found was all that encouragement that you got as someone being really close, once you made the tour, that encouragement was no longer there. You were another body that was just going to take someone else's job. 
So, yeah, the looks changed, the the atmosphere changed, and I guess the professionalism. When I did the world qualifying tour, it was your heat's on at 10.30, whether it's two foot, whether the tide's low, whether it's closing out, you're on. And jumping onto the world tour, which I didn't have really any major sponsors to get used to, oh, you know, the tide's low, it's not that good, we're not going to surf for a week. It's like, hang on a second, like I've just got to try and get my performance in. Is it on tomorrow? And they're like, come back tomorrow. So that was a really hard thing for me to get used to, that I'd come through a system where you knew you were always going to surf and then you got to a new system where those guys were used to, number one, competing man-on-man strategies and obviously had you know some of the best in the game there. But also the waiting, that was, it took me two or three years to get used to the waiting. And I mean, most people, even with extraordinary talent, it takes them two or three years to settle into that mindset of competing at that level, being comfortable just with your surrounds, with everyone else. When you're there your first year as a rookie, unless you're an amazing talent like Trent Munro or Bobby Martinez, who went on and won their first event. I think event three for both of those guys. It was a bit of a grind. It took me sort of five events to get my first a CT heat victory. So that first year was a real, a real grind. And then the other aspect was I could surf well in, in most waves at like 1032. That's when the heat was, but to surf well in waves of consequence, like I'd never seen anything like Tahiti. Like my left was Butterbox. You know, three to four foot fat left. And I remember rocking up to Tahiti just going, I've never seen anything like this in my life. I'd made the quarterfinals. I was out there with Manoa Drolet, Brendan Marguson, and Toadie Seddon. And Manoa Drolet pretty much started the way that we backhand tube ride. It's eight to 10 feet. These gaping monsters are just coming out. I was like, I don't even think this is surfable. Manoa Drolet goes over the falls on his first wave, gone. I don't know if he's dead. The local legend, I don't know what's happened to him, but he's not there. So I turn around to Margo, who I've been watching in these green iguana videos, surf, you know, massive bluff, eight-foot bluff lefts, barreling, and I go, mate, I'm absolutely shitting myself. Can you go on the inside? And he goes, no way, mate. <laughs> You're next. You got to go. <laughs> oh, it's absolutely frightening. But just to get used to competing in waves like that was was something very foreign to me, and foreign for a lot of us. I remember, you know, Luke Luke Hitchings uh, from Bronte, and there were some guys that really sort of stood up. And if you wanted to be a professional surfer, you had to put your balls on the line and your life on the line. And that sort of at that time period, that's when the tour really changed, we went from, you know, a world tour where you could compete at places like Huntington, at Bells Beach, where it's, you know, your life's not on the line, life's not on the line, excuse me, to Chopu, Fiji, obviously Pipeline was always there, but, you know, it became this real life-threatening tour and obviously everyone at home wants to see you fall out of the lip on, a, on an eight-footer, but um, if you haven't had that sort of practice or gone on those boat trips, which a lot of guys do now, it was extremely foreign, but I guess the one thing that holds you in good stead that if you want it enough, because I never really wanted to surf 10-foot death-defying lefts, but I wanted to be successful. 
And the only other good thing was we had all the lifeguards there that if you're ever going to have a go, having the guys on the jet ski to just scrape you back off the reef and patch back up, um, that was the best time that that was going to happen. So I actually had some of my best waves on tour in Tahiti, which probably scared me the most out of anywhere, which it does for a lot of us. But, yeah, finding finding your feet on that on that tour was just so hard. It's just such an intimidating place. I could probably liken it to, you know, rookies coming through playing first grade rugby league and you get smashed by the forward pack doing a hit up. That's, that's sort of what Tahiti felt like to me. And you either stand up and be counted or you shuffle off. And I remember when we got there, actually, John Schmooker from Hawaii got to Chopu and said, I'm retired. And I was just like, this is so freaky. But it was epic. Once you, <laughs> once you get over that fear, you know, I'm not, I don't know if I could do the 30 foot. But yeah, twelve to twelve foot chopes is, is manageable, sort of. As crazy as that sounds. Well, that's a lot of people say to me, you know, that don't have an ocean background, and they say, "Oh, it must be great to be able to do, you know, what you do as a lifeguard." And they say not to have any fear. But I said, "Look, it doesn't matter who goes in the water, how good you are. Everyone's got a fear. Uh, yeah, everyone's got their limit. Everyone's got a fear. And if you don't have a fear," then you don't respect the ocean and then things go wrong. Yeah, 100%. I mean, we're, everyone's scared. I mean, no one sleeps well at, at Chopu. You don't sleep well at Pipeline when you hear the buoys are 20, 20 feet, 25 seconds. You, you don't sleep well as well at all. Tahiti, the chickens go off at 3 o'clock. It's not even light yet. you got to paddle out through a channel where boats don't see you in the dark and run you over, but... Like anyone, as you know, Hoppo, when you're involved in the ocean, you've just got to be prepared. So you're reducing your risk of injury, your fitness is up. I didn't really have great breath capacity. I know Kelly Slater's even working on that to this day, the freak that he is. But yeah, just trying to get your mindset right and, and surfing somewhere like Chopu and Pipeline, it's it's the physical element of being fit, but it's also when you're out there by yourself, it's 8 to 12 feet, Everyone's yelling at you in the channel to go. Your life's on the line. It almost becomes like an out-of-body experience. You trust every bit of skill that you've been able to garner from riding your bike up back from DY to Beacon Hill, swimming laps in Manly Pool, training with Terry Day. It's this accumulation of, of life experiences which actually makes you relax, trust in your intuition and be able to commit. I mean, some of these things at Chopu, I liken it to, you know, looking down the Eiffel Tower, though, that steep, you know, like it's, it's not possible. And then you surf with people that make it possible, like Andy Irons. I was like, that wave's not rideable. And then I look back in and Andy's 10 or 12 feet inside him. I'm like, oh, okay, he can do it. <laughs> Even though he's, you know, sidecarring down this steep wave. But, yeah, if you want to be – the best and there's certainly a lot of guys that put in so much time and effort and it's the old adage if that's your job and when you retire i remember the boys went to Eureka, chile i don't know if you remember that event or not andy irons end up winning it but i remember people like kieran perot going it's not surfable when you're watching at home you know the boys were getting carved up on the inside and a few scrapes and snap boards and bumps but it was just great theater to watch and you're like well you're your professional surfers, get out there, boys. Um, but when you're in that moment, you're like, okay, I'm going to kill myself at a reach of Chile to, to get a ninth or to beat Andy. Or uh, it's, it's, it's pretty funny when you're in those, those situations and 
it definitely feels a lot better when the heat's over and you've you've survived. I mean, we had a couple of crazy experiences, you know, Neko Paterats almost drowned. I was in the heat following that one. Shane Weiner got ran over by the jet ski before we arrived at Tahiti. The guy got sucked over the falls backwards and died, got his jaw ripped off on the reef. And when you're out there competing and your life's on the line, it's, you know, you've really got to want to do it. Do you remember a wipeout that you thought, I'm, I, I'm going to die here? Yeah, I had a, I had a couple. I had a, a two-wave hold down at Chopu when it was sort of before it was Chopu. Me and Paul Patterson, great Ant-Man, who Jake Patterson's brother from Western Australia, absolute maniac. So we're out at Chopu by ourselves. It's about 8 to 12 feet, semi-onshore. It started to clean up a little bit. Paddo's sort of used to that surfing the bombies in Western Australia and I sort of got dragged along with him. You know, we're going about going out there, Merge, we'll be all right. Sort of trusting Pato. I took off on this one and it chopes nose dived, which wasn't as bad as I thought. I got, you know, tumbled, rolled, beaten up, lost the first round of lung capacity. And this wave came through, it must have been at 12, 15 feet possibly. And I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if I could paddle in. I didn't know if I could paddle out. I look over and see Pato, who's in the channel, who's almost going white with fear because it was a life and death situation. So I just started paddling out and I was like, I'm dead. And almost had a heart attack, actually. I'm, I'm paddling and you, you, I probably wouldn't do it now because I know the intensity of the wave, but... I paddled so fast and hard that I got to the apex of the bottom of this wave at Chopes, which is about 10 or 12 feet. And I was so far at the bottom and it, as it threw out, I did about five or six strokes up through the lip of this wave, which normally pulls you back over and drives you straight in the reef. But for the miracle of God, I got through this wave at the top, still paddling like Niagara Falls is trying to pull me back in. <laughs> I'm almost having a heart attack. Paddo's all white in the face. Next wave comes through, is twice the size. I remember duck diving about a 20-foot foam ball, and that probably saved my life. If I had, a, had to get through another one, I would have died. I sat in the channel, and I said, Paddo, I think I'm having a heart attack. He goes, you'll be all right. I had to lie on my board for five minutes and then I'm done with this surf. I'm, I'm not doing this with you again. <laughs> Bloody lunatic. Just absolutely pushing me to do crazy things. Uh, he got me again about 10 years later out at Haleiwa. He said, oh, it's, the buoys are 20 to 25 feet. We should be able to sneak down to Haleiwa for a surf before it gets too big. So I was out there and... I got a couple of waves on the inside and then I didn't see Pato, I didn't see Chava Greenlay and I thought they must be out the back near the buoy. So I kept getting a few waves, it kept getting bigger and then I just started paddling for the ocean. Every set I had to duck dive, I was further out, I was 100 metres out, I was still breaking out there, another 100 metres out, I was still breaking. So I finally get a wave in, the boys are on the beach, they're like, what the fuck were you doing out there? I was like, I was looking for you guys. They're like, we came in an hour ago. It was too big. Bastard got me twice. Paddo. <laughs> oh, too good. Too good, the Ant-Man. Trying to kill myself. Trying to kill myself staying out there. 
Mate, uh, do you remember the toughest competitor? Toughest? I guess there's a few. Jake Patterson I thought was really tough. Like I mentioned before, he would leave nothing to chance, always worked on – he'd be down the beach with three backup boards, five backup leg ropes, two different wax combs, three different waxes. Jake taught me that adversity happens to all of us. You break a board, your wax doesn't feel right. Jake would leave nothing to chance. He'd have all that preparation there. He would – a lot of people would go into a heat and they go, okay, heat's on, press their watch. Jake would be looking for that first wave 30 seconds before the heat. He was so hard to beat. He never gave up, even if it was – Flavio Paderats had him com- in a combination situation with five minutes to go at Bells. Pado got out of that combination with – two minutes to go in a heat, got two eights. Jake taught me like that never say die attitude, which he actually went on to beat Bruce Irons and win the Pipe Masters. Bruce was on the beach with a minute and a half to go, had his finger in the air, claiming victory. All the Hawaiians were celebrating. And when I talked to Jake about the story, he said there was about 100 people paddling over from, it was last heat of the day, the Pipe Final, 100 people paddling over to him going, you lost Patterson, Bruce Irons is the best. And if you watch the footage of Jake, he takes off eight-foot pipe on the 7-4 John Carper that I'd tuned up for him in the months earlier, uh, being there in Hawaii with his brother Paul. Pulls in under the curl as the final hooter goes and gets this incredible tube ride at backdoor, comes out with his hands in the air. The whole beach is absolutely shattered. Bruce Irons is waving his hands around, just drops them. Face goes down like you've been knocked out. It was the greatest moment, but um, I was so fortunate to travel with Jake. I had a pretty good record against him too. I think think we were 3-2 in my favour. But, yeah, I found him the toughest competitor for for that reason, for his never-say-die attitude. He wouldn't give up. He would be meticulous in his preparation and and obviously went on to um, have those four wins that I mentioned and and obviously a Pipe Masters and also a a back-to-back, a J-Bay. He beat Andy Irons at at Sunset where there was all sorts of chaos going in Hawaii. He was the head of the ASP. He was a surface rep and all the Hawaiians wanted to kill him because he didn't let the 16 wild cards in. Jake really yeah, taught me about toughness and I was fortunate to travel and train with Jake and it probably helped me in my career to be prepared to not give up, especially when the, the chips are down, uh, but he would be my toughest competitor. You travelled 15 years you know, on the Pro Tour and, and you've realised you know, how tough it is, the competitive side, the travel side, the hotels, the plane rides. Can you believe Kelly Slater is still on the tour? It's it's incredible. I think just from a physical act aspect, I think Kelly's been probably fortunate amongst other things with his body. You can have as much desire and determination and skill and preparation, but it wasn't until the back end of Kelly's career um, that he started getting injuries that kept him from competing. The foot injury at J-Bay, breaking the foot, as you know, you once you start to get older, bones become a bit more brittle. But it's been incredible because he puts himself in the toughest spots on ways when you look at him winning the eddy, pulling into 25-foot barrels, 
Kelly's intensity and his the way that he can apply himself to other people that handle that amount of fame as well. And I think in part, Kelly's a lot of things. He's addicted to fame, but that also fuels his desire to continue to entertain. So some of his best mates, obviously Jack Johnson and Eddie Vedder at Pearl Jam, they go and entertain people till they're, you know, 50, 60. Freddie Couples is another one of his mates, obviously still out there on the seniors tour, still entertaining people. So Kelly's sort of got that, I think, in his mindset to say, well, I'm still an entertainer. Age shouldn't be any barrier. And when you work on your skills and hone your skills as much as he has, I mean, it's a phenomenon. Everyone, you know, there was a period there where we were so over Kelly winning. Like, it was just a joke. He'd won seven world titles. And I think this whole surfing world was over. It was like, Kelly's won again. Oh, how boring. Um, it wasn't until Andy Irons came along and, and wanted to rip his pretty little picture into pieces that, you know, and played the villain because everyone else had sort of fallen to that trap of, of loving Kelly. And that was probably, you know, a testament to, to some of the downfalls that you'd have such admiration from him and he'd just tie people up left, right and centre. He, he still proclaims to this day an age that he, he doesn't do the psych outs, but we all know a little bit different there. You only had to look at <laughs> when he paddled around Shane Beshin at uh, Huntington Beach in the first two minutes of the final there and, and Shane should have looked inside but didn't think Kelly was going to paddle around behind him. Uh, that was just Kelly's intensity. I mean, we had a we had a great semi-final in, in Japan and I never forget the detail of his surfing. I thought I had priority for this wave and we're paddling back out and as Kelly's in the lip, I remember seeing him turn his head a little bit and I thought he was looking at me, eyeballing me and he just got a last glance of the priority disc as he's paddling through the lip. So the next wave I thought I had priority on and I took off and I sort of backed off. Kelly had priority, but I remember going back in my train of thought going, how did Kelly know he had priority? And then I remember, that's right, we we're paddling through the lip and he's had the tenacity to look quickly around, see the boy and make sure that he was on the next wave. That's just how, how good he is. But his freakish ability to have the longevity that he's had, I know, you know, watching his lost tapes, that it's not a lot of fun all the time on the tour. It is hard. Um, I know that he was li- missing 11 boards in J-Bay. You know, Kelly's probably got a, a bit of um, debonair about himself at times, rocking up late, uh, trusting his skill level. But it's just a phenomenon to see him do that at 50, and as you mentioned before, winning in waves of consequence at the highest level when you're 50 is extraordinary. I mean, when you've been in and around the water like you have and I have and you, you see these guys, the, the people that dedicate their lives to, let's just say it's Jamie Mitchell. He's in one spot for three months. Kelly's doing this week in, week out. I mean, that's the hardest thing. That's, that's what happens to a lot of us that – that travel breaks your body down. You're sitting in planes every week. That's that's hard unless you've got, you know, he's got a double-jointed back as well. That certainly helps getting contorted into some of those backhand barrels. But it, it's a marvel. It's I don't think he gets the recognition that, I mean, as surface, we say he's the best athlete in the world, but I don't think he appeared in the Sports Illustrated top 50 athletes. And that's just go and walk a mile in his shoes, 
you know, he doesn't have the, I guess, the hype and the pressure of, of the basketball games or the NFL games. So surfing's a little bit different in that sense, um, but to still have that propensity to win and, and the desire. I mean, 11 world titles, how many more does he need? He gives him out for Christmas presents. <laughs> That's right. I sent you a world title for Christmas. I got a few. <laughs> and, and Kelly, when you watch, you know, it's a good thing to go and watch his lost tapes. It's his mind that probably beats him more so than anything else because his skill level, you know, there's not many people that can beat Kelly on a yeah. skill level. Andy was one and there's a handful of others, but there's not many people that are at that. You know, John Florence, Gabe now. There's a few guys that obviously learnt from Kelly and, and apply themselves so uh, yeah, I love seeing, I guess like everyone, go Kelly at 50. <laughs> Keep going. That's right, mate. Now, all those years on the tour, and then you finally come to the, the time where I'm going to retire, and then the transition of going from, you know, a lifestyle of surfing the world to what do I do now? Yeah, it's a really hard one. I've talked to a lot of other athletes that are probably better versed in surfing. We sort of Prior to me retiring, it was a lot of guys that went back into the industry, you know, they retail or, you know, go and get be a sales rep for Oakley or be a team manager for Quicksilver. There wasn't a whole lot of education around about going back to the workplace. I don't think that's really changed too much either. Hopefully, you've, you've been successful enough to buy yourself a couple of years of wandering around sort of in the abyss. Maybe you can go and – I guess we're lucky that we can go and – have that lifestyle opportunity for a year. Some some sponsors will be happy to see you go out and just promote products, uh, go on a few surf trips. I was lucky enough that, lucky or unlucky enough that I knew that my skill level wasn't fantastic. And while I was on tour, I tried to hone some other skills. So I'd be involved in the broadcast. I had a little segment called the Foster's Backstage Pass where we'd take some crew at each of the different 10 stops on a, a unique experience, whether it was the game reserves, game reserves in South Africa or flying into Steve Irwin's Australian Zoo with B Derbage. So I tried to develop a few other skills. I also got myself involved in commentary side of it. I really loved the sport. I loved the detail of it. I loved the matchup between the surface. So I had all that knowledge just from being around and, and loved to yeah, try and make the event and surfing a bit more interesting. So I was lucky that I was able to pick up a few broadcast jobs. I'd got myself a job with a shoe company called Etnies, which were a big part of my career as well, having something to fall back on, being a team manager. So I was looking after about 25 athletes. But it's certainly a wilderness when you think, especially going into something like out of the industry, a job like real estate. Now, when you're a professional athlete, a lot of people want to talk to you. When you're in real estate and you pick up the phone, you go, hi, it's Toby Martin, the real estate agent. What? Click. <laughs> you know, there's not people that are going to have too much time for you. No, I'm not selling my house. Click. Um, you know, that was, that was a, you know, a smack in the face of, okay, it's, you know, people aren't just asking you questions. I had to learn to ask people questions. Okay, you're not selling at the moment. That's fine, but... Have you thought about buying an investment property? You just try and debunk the the natural guard up that 99.9% natural fear of real estate agents. No, you're not selling my house. But um, it becomes, yeah, a pretty unique set of skills that you've got to learn, which I didn't have. I remember even if it was talking to girls, I'd, I'd be too scared to ring. So I'd have to 
map out and write down what I was going to ask. And I was so petrified. That obviously 12 years later, when you have to provide for your family, you start making calls. And I didn't have the luxury really of, of falling back into, you know, the great job at Quicksilver that all sort of dried up. So I liked helping people. And that was, that was probably the hardest transition, but luckily I wasn't, you know, going paycheck to paycheck. I'd, I'd had a bit of a buffer zone. I had an investment property and I didn't have too many dependents. Obviously, the, those that have got kids, you know, which was the sacrifice that I had to make, having kids later in life because I just, you know, pretty much was self-centered just getting myself around the tour and, and getting myself from place to place. It would have been nice to, to have that, you know, person to, to share the ride with, but we'll have that now. Me and my daughter will travel Back to all those places, I get certainly lots of invites on my, on my inbox. When are you coming back to Tassie? When are you coming back to France? So, um, yeah, I've just got to work to pay for all that now. Yeah, yeah real, real, real tough transition. Yeah. So, mate, do you, do you still get in the water as much as you can? I try to. It used to be a little bit easier, minus the family, house, renovations. You know, I used to think we were really busy where you could go and play golf three times a week. You'd have five or six surfs, you'd go and do some training and then you get in the real world and they're like, hey, you only got 10 days off a year or you know, four weeks holiday. I'm like, what? I go to Hawaii for four weeks. They're like, no, mate, it's only four weeks holiday. That's um, you know, getting back into that you know, real life world, which everyone sort of took a great deal of delight in that because you've been off swanning around for 20 years and uh, everyone thought that was quite humorous that you know, I was in a – in a real job situation, but just making that transition, I think you need a little buffer zone. I think most most athletes get to that situation where you need a year or two just to, I guess it's like finishing school that you, you really don't know what you want to do. Once you've been so passionate in one field, it's sort of hard to pick up straight away something that you're equally as passionate about. I think anyone that's involved in sports trying to find that next thing. I think when you... When you've got a goal and it's what you want to do, it's working hard's really easy. When you have to work hard uh, for something that isn't a direct passion, I found that really challenging. And I talk to a lot of ex-athletes that find that really hard as well. Obviously, you've got to provide for your family, but to find that career path, not just a job where you're passionate about it and you can be successful at it and also feed that need for, I guess, for me in real estate, you know, it's a pretty tough role. But you also get to help people and it's, it's got that sort of intimate side to it as well. It's highly emotional. There's a lot of pressure, which sport is, but you can steer people with your education and your learning to help them with their, with their greatest assets. So it's, it's multifaceted, I guess, for me in the, in the real estate world, helping people. Well, Toby, mate, it's been great listening to your story. You've got so many uh, great stories out there, the surf tour and uh – what a great lifestyle back in the day and as still now doing the uh, real estate, mate. Still uh, good living on the northern beaches. It's fantastic. Best place in the world. <laughs> well, mate, uh, at the end of the interview, I uh, have my segment, Five Fun Facts. So I'm going to throw the questions at you. So best thing about the northern beaches? Well, there's 20 of them, but I'll encapsulate that with one word, our beaches. From <laughs> Manly to Palm Beach, there's a little alcove in any wind direction, any swell direction. And you've traveled around the world, seen many beautiful places, coming home and just having 
our beaches. I mean, I had a walk around Long Reef Headland this morning and it reminded me of Hawaii. It does every day. There's, you know, a great swell going today. It feels like I'm back in Hawaii without taking the, the plane ride. So I think our beaches is our best asset. What are you most proud of? There's a lot to be proud of in a 15 or 16 year career, but I think just qualifying for the tour. It's hard to be in the best of the best. When you make that elite level, it's certainly a lifetime achievement. I got to number one in the world on the qualifying series, but qualifying for the tour, being up there with the best of the best, having Kelly Slater go jersey to jersey, toe to toe with you in the surf. You know, that's something that my daughter still talks about now that, you know, you surfed against Kelly Slater and you beat Mick Fanning in Japan. So that's pretty cool. Gives you a little bit of chicken skin. But favourite childhood memory? Favourite childhood memory, growing up on the northern beaches, our house at Beacon Hill. As I mentioned, it looked over DY Beach, which got me into the surf, but it also got me down to Brookvale Oval. And my favourite memory was Dad taking me down Sunday afternoon, pushing me through the crowd so I could watch my mighty manly seagulls. I've got this <laughs> crazy photo of me being about eight years of age, Big fat head, bowl haircut in the Seagulls jersey, and I still love it to this day and age. Um, I was a ground announcer actually in, in 2011, the last time we won. So, yeah, I love the boys. Um, I love my Seagulls. I love the combative nature of it, and just to have it in our backyard is pretty special. Well, mate, uh, I'm a massive Roosters supporter, so big game this week. The Roosters are playing the Seagulls. It's on. It's on. It's a do or die, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> the bird gang, so we're going to clash. <laughs> we have to put something in those lattes for Tedesco. Might have to. <laughs> <laughs> Some laxatives. A <laughs> couple of doses of COVID. <laughs> Mate, what, uh, what would you name your boat if you had one? So the best boat name is OP, which stands for Other People's because they're a lot cheaper to run. But if I think I had my own boat, I would name it Merle's after my recently passed auntie, who is quite a character. So if you were going to jump on Merle's boat, you'd have to be a bit of a character and bring something to the table. So get on Merle's. <laughs> Last question, favourite surf break? Look, it would be hard for me not to say my, my one love where I honed all my skills, DY Point. I've had probably... 10 of my most memorable waves, barrels out there. Fortunate to grow up around a good group of guys, world-class photographers like Peter Crawford, world-class surfers like Shane Herring, Garth Dickinson, Russell Lewis, Brad Wybrew, to name just a few. I think, yeah, DY Point's very special. It's steeped in history. It's a tough wave to surf. The crowd is uncompromising. The locals are vicious. But if you work your way through the pack and you get that wave from first rock all the way through to Kitty's Corner, it's pretty special. Yeah. Mate, uh, no different to growing up at Bronny. Bronny Reef was a, a pretty tough place to, to surf and also the uh, the older guys wouldn't give you an inch. Yeah, it's, is that sort of like the Loch Ness Monster? It doesn't always happen, does it, Bronte? I've seen some great barrels of you know the Bronte pigs, Tommy Whitaker and... And Luke Hitchings out there, sitting out there with all their roosters mates, Craig Wing and Fitzgibbon, and I haven't, I haven't actually surfed it, so maybe that's uh, that's one that I should put on the list. Did Luke Hitchings get the cover of Tracks out there? 
Yeah, I think he did. When it, when it's on, it's it's a it's a it's a great break at Bronny, but it just doesn't happen often enough. No, and then you blokes are always uh, swanning around at Glamorama, aren't you? <laughs> yeah, mate. Well, I'll, I'll let you over there if you want to have a surf every now and again, mate. <laughs> yeah, give us give us a pass, mate. Yeah. <laughs> just just throw me a bridge toll. It's about a hundred bucks to get across there now, isn't it? <laughs> Cost of living. Yeah, mate. It is. It is. As long as you can tip me into a couple of sets. <laughs> for sure, mate, for sure. Thanks for coming in the b chat, mate. It's great to have you. Great stories and uh, good stuff. Yeah, big one. Just It would have been Andy Irons' 44th birthday today. AI forever. He's uh, on my picture behind me, uh, which you can see. But, yeah, AI, miss you, mate. And Hopper, miss you too. We'll, <laughs> we'll catch you in the lineup. Yeah, mate, we'll catch up soon. Yeah, bros. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, we've got Dino's come back in to uh, have us chat and tell a story about probably, well, it's funny looking back in hindsight, but at the time wasn't funny. We uh, heard this massive explosion come from the pavilion. Yeah, this is back in the day. This is before Bondi Rescue, and it's funny to think it, it would have been a good Bondi Rescue story because at the time... We were told a bomb's gone off in the girls' toilets or the boys. Do you remember? I think it was the girls. <sighs> I think it was the girls, and, yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 the building was evacu- evacuated, the pavilion, and I found myself out the front with you going, what do we do? <laughs> um, as, we, as we're telling people to get away, and, and must, we ran in to the toilet to make sure no one was in there and was in trouble, and it was... Um, you know, it was confronting for me because I feel quite comfortable in the ocean. I don't mind people go, "Oh, you risk your life to save people," and I thought, and I, you know, I sound like a bit of a bit full of myself when I say, "No, you know, I'm pretty comfortable in the ocean. I don't mind going out in the ocean to to save people. I feel at home there. I've spent years in pools, and but yeah, running into running into a toilet, thinking a bomb could go off and you could die, I was terrified. Yeah, I mean, I, I try to remember what uh, I think we, you know, obviously we've come off the beach, so we've both got you know, bare feet. Bare feet, absolutely. There's glass everywhere because a lot of uh, a lot of glass and uh, windows had shattered. There's that much smoke, you couldn't see anything inside. And I think I ran in as well because I think there's a mother there looking. You led the charge. Cool. You you ran in first. I think there's a mother saying, "Oh, my child's still inside," or something along those lines. And I thought, "Oh, well." Gonna have to try and get this this kid out. We've both uh, both headed in to, to have a look, and geez, it was yeah, it was it was quite intimidating at the time. Yeah, really different, and and you know the, the that lifeguard job it just throws different things at you. Um, you know, but three hundred and sixty degrees, you got to have eyes coming out of everywhere and and beyond to stuff. And you know, fortunately, as you said, it was it wasn't a bomb. You know, and but. You know, for, for us at the time, we were we were potentially risking our lives to to make sure everyone was okay. Yeah, I think it was ended up being a, a, a couple of kids putting the crackers down the the toilet bowl, and it's exploded, and the, the whole toilet bowl just exploded. And I, I remember uh, when I had a look, it was just a hole in the ground; everything had disappeared. So I, I suppose it, it's lucky that porcelain from the bowl could have you know, shattered and, and pretty much killed someone if they had been close by. But luckily no one was injured, which is a, a good thing. And as you said, though, is 
it's funny, we're, we're so used to rescuing people in the ocean. It's funny when it's not the ocean, we still go into the same mindset. Yeah, yeah, dealing, you know, dealing with car accidents and stuff like that. It's, yeah, there's, you know, running around barefoot. Yeah, so many stories over the years. I remember little kids being locked in cars and smashing car windows. It's, yeah, a lot. To, a lot to, it's not just rescues on the beach, is it? Mm-hmm. No, it's not. And I remember when the fire brigade turned up and in hindsight, we obviously just reacted off instinct and, and, and went about what we need to do. But they were saying, oh, the smoke too, you know, mm. we would inhale a lot of that smoke and things like that. But it's something that, you know, I definitely didn't even think about. Or the first thing I thought about was getting in and getting everybody out that was in there. Yeah, yeah, it was good. We, we, we got in there, we checked everything, there was no one in there and we were able to clear everyone out and get ourselves away from it, which was... I think the best case, yeah, it would have been awful just sitting out there going, I wonder if anyone's in there. Yeah, I think it would have been hard for me to be able to, if we didn't go and do what we did and then suddenly they're carrying out a you know, a little girl mm. that didn't survive because we didn't go in, it's uh, that would be hard to deal with down the track. Yeah, a lot of, uh, yeah, lots of, lots to deal with over the years. We should uh, sit down and pen a new book, I reckon. There's some interesting tales to be told. Yeah, mate, there's plenty there, so we'll have to uh, all do that one day. Although, as you said, they, they look back and reflect and go, oh, you shouldn't have done that. I said, <laughs> oh, well, we, we, we did and we felt like we had to, so made the best decision we could at the time. Yeah. I mean, this day and age, everyone, the society's totally different, I suppose, than what it was 20 years ago, 30 years mm. ago. So what we did back then is probably not uh, yeah. okay in some eyes these days. But at the end of the day, you do what you have to do to save someone's life. Yeah, so, yeah. Beautiful thing we get to do. All right, Dean, mate, it's uh, great having you in the beach shack and uh, I'll catch you to the beach soon. All right, good to, good to chat, good to tell stories. Now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. Okay, this week's letter in the mailbag is from Troy and he's from Sydney. He said, when... Uh, you're down the beach, how do you know when it's going to be a busy day or not? Well, Troy, it's uh, pretty much over all the years, you sort of know when you turn up that you look at the different rips, uh, the way the wind's blowing, whether it's sunny, not sunny, whether it's uh, the crowd is going to be in the low and high tide. If it's low tide, predominantly in the afternoon, you know it's going to be busy with that water running out during the afternoon period. So pretty much you weigh everything up and have a a reasonably good idea whether it's going to be busy or not on that day. So thanks, Troy, for uh, sending in your letter and I'll catch everyone again next week. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.